As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Earth Keepers podcast. I shared with you a few weeks back that I was in the process of doing a big group of property readings in a short period of time. Typically, I do just a handful of readings each month, usually two or three. So to receive the guidance to do 10 in two weeks, which actually turned out to be 17 in three weeks, I knew there was a larger purpose that would be uncovered. After the first few, I was starting to see a pattern emerge. Most of them had very little work needed for the property itself. I was being called to the area to do large-scale work on the energetic grids in the area. And then it occurred to me, I should plot them on a map. Was there a theme to their locations? So I pulled up my map that has the cities of light and rose lines on the United States and started plotting. It was so clear almost immediately. Nearly every single property was on a rose line or in a city of light. And if you want to know more about what those are, I'll add a link in the show notes to an extended video on my YouTube channel all about them. What was interesting in these readings I was doing was that I was being asked in reading after reading to work on these earth energies across the entire state or sometimes multiple states. It looked to me like old energies were being purged on the grid lines to make way for something new. So to say that the three weeks I spent working on this project was a bit intense would be an understatement. I've been experiencing some significant shifts in how I do this energy work since the first of the year, but this project really pushed and tested my understanding of what exactly I'm doing. I've been forced to question my beliefs and in some cases completely change them. And as I've been putting together the details of this episode, I realized that most of the pieces have been coming through all year long. If you go back and listen to every episode since January, you'll hear me mention most of the things we're going to talk about today and in the next few weeks already. It's all been there. I just hadn't connected the dots yet. So I want to do a deep dive on what I've learned and experienced over the past few months because I think it will explain a lot of what many of us are feeling, knowing, or exploring right now about the nature of our reality, and the state of the earth. But it's too much for just one episode. I'm going to break it up into three episodes. And although time is not linear, we're going to walk through it in a linear way. Today, we're going to dive into the past. What exactly has happened here on earth over thousands of years to bring us to this point of manipulated grids, artificial intelligence overlays, and who knows what else. I'll stick to the highlights, but 
Know that if you're really interested in these topics, you could probably spend the rest of your life researching them in detail. Next week, we'll talk more about what I see happening with humanity and the earth in this moment in time. And then the following week, I'll share where it looks like we're headed with this ascension process. I hope we can put some puzzle pieces together for you too. But as I've been researching, I've asked myself again and again, does this even matter? Do we even need to know all of this? And I think the short answer is no, it doesn't actually matter. We can move forward whether we have this little history lesson or not. However, I personally find it interesting. And I just try not to let myself spend too much time on the minutiae while putting the pieces together that at least gives me some context around how we got here and what is happening now. So feel free to take what resonates and leave the rest. But what I tend to see online these days are a whole lot of complicated messages and posts with prophecies or channelings or coded messages from mystics of the past that don't share any context. There's no why or how. So let's actually talk about it. How exactly has spiritual knowledge been handed down and used over thousands of years? We're going to start with Atlantis. Yep, we're going all the way back. And Atlantis isn't even the beginning. But if you're wondering why Atlantis has been coming in so strong at the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021, it's because it's time to release the pain and trauma we carry from those lifetimes and remember the gifts that we have. So Atlantis as a culture existed for 240,000 years. Pretty much Everyone alive on Earth today had at least one life in Atlantis, if not many. And the actual purpose of Atlantis was to see if humans could exist in a physical body and still maintain their connection to God, source, all that is. The experiment was carried out and terminated time and again in those 240,000 years. And every time it was discovered that humans with free will would always move deeper into matter and self-destruction and further from source. Until finally, the golden age of Atlantis got it right. For 1,500 years, everything worked perfectly. People enjoyed amazing spiritual, psychic, and technological power. They lived by the seven spiritual laws that governed humanity most of which you've probably heard of. They include the laws of karma, manifestation, grace, responsibility, unconditional love, intention, and ultimately, the law of one. The law of one says that we're all part of the whole, and our actions affect every single creature in the universe. Now, as we know, power, control, greed, and cruelty also brought down this golden age, and it ended with a great flood somewhere around 10,000 BC. But not everyone went down with the ship, as we might say. The high priests and priestesses led those who were willing to other parts of the world to continue their work, or rather to start over. But the knowledge and wisdom from Atlantis did not die with Atlantis. It was separated 
between the 12 high priests and priestesses and carried forward into many of the ancient civilizations we now know. The Incas, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Babylonians, Egyptians, Inuits, and Cherokees. Other tribes went to Hawaii, Tibet, Mesopotamia, Greece, and New Zealand. The wisdom of the Atlantean age was slowly integrated with the people and cultures in these locations. Now, we need to fast forward quite a bit from here because time passes, new cultures are built, and wisdom is handed down from generation to generation. But then things get interesting in Jerusalem, hundreds of years before Jesus is born. Somewhere around 970 BC, King Solomon begins construction of a temple, primarily for prayer and sacrifice to God. It was also said to house the Ark of the Covenant, a sacred container holding the Ten Commandments, among other important artifacts. When the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem a few hundred years later, they plundered the temple and the artifacts disappeared. A decade later, there was another attack and the temple was destroyed. For every group of people who has inhabited Jerusalem, a temple has been built in this same location. Christians, Muslims, and Jews have all considered the Temple Mount sacred. Why? Because as it turns out, there is a very important meeting of energetic grid lines in the earth at this spot. At some point before any structure was on the site, humans had discovered that healing, manifestation, and communication with spirit happened very easily here. The ancient Hebrews knew it, and so did the prophet Muhammad. He said that during a dream in this location, he received instructions on how to pray. So this location became very important and valuable, as you might imagine. Because at this point in history, we're well past not only the fall of Atlantis, but the fall of many of the golden ages of other cultures who would have also had these pieces of wisdom. Our 12 strands of DNA had been downgraded to only two, and the energy on Earth was incredibly dense. Communication with the divine wasn't something that was easy for most people to do. Important energetic places like this were considered the axis mundi, places where heaven and Earth meet. Another name for the axis mundi is the shamanic tree of life. Ancient shamans around the world used the Tree of Life to travel with their consciousness to other multidimensional worlds while their physical bodies remained anchored in time and space. The trunk of the tree is the axis, or pole, that takes them where they want to go, up into the branches to the celestial realms, or down into the roots to the inner earth realms. So, Energetic nodes like this would have held even greater power in ancient times, when shamanic journeying was much more energetically difficult than it is today. No wonder civilizations were willing to go to war to have these locations as part of their empire. You'd certainly be in direct communication with God if you had your temple on an energetic hotspot like this. Now, King Solomon, who obviously wasn't the first to know about this particular location in Jerusalem, was the first one to build a temple on it. Fast forwarding through time and space again, after the Babylonians destroyed the temple, 
King Herod held control of the area through the time of Jesus. Herod's temple was then destroyed by the Roman Empire, and it seems like the importance of Temple Mount was perhaps forgotten for 600 years, as the most recent version of the temple laid there in ruins, until the Muslims took control of Jerusalem and cleared the area to build two separate mosques. Jerusalem then fell to the Christian Crusaders in 1099, and this time, instead of destroying the buildings on Temple Mount, they simply repurposed them into churches, which began a steady stream of Christian pilgrims making their way to the Holy Land. These pilgrims were often robbed or murdered during their journeys across Muslim-controlled land, and so 18 years later, a military order was formed to assist the pilgrims with safe passage to Jerusalem. Yep, you guessed it, the Knights Templar. Or more officially, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. Temple Mount was the Templar headquarters for the next 67 years until they too were booted from Jerusalem. And it was well documented that the group carried out extensive digging and tunneling beneath the temple, mosque, church locations. Among the artifacts the Templars are said to have unearthed during their time on Temple Mount were the fabled Holy Grail, the Turin Shroud, the head of St. John the Baptist, the Spear of Destiny, the embalmed head of Jesus Christ, and the location of the last resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Who knows what is truth and what is fiction? But the stories are clearly legendary, even today. But here's what is interesting. Beneath Temple Mount, there are gigantic, perfectly carved and placed stones laid at what was likely the original foundation of the temple. And when I say gigantic, I mean like hundreds of tons. The Western stone is estimated at 660 tons. Others are as big as 80 tons. As a comparison, the largest stone at Stonehenge is only 25 tons. They were cut from limestone, and their surfaces are a perfect match, placed together with no mortar. The age of these stones places them there long before King Solomon's temple. More likely, they were there around the time of the building of the pyramids in Egypt by another culture who knew the importance of this location. So back to the Templars. What exactly did they get their hands on in Jerusalem? It's anyone's guess for sure, and it's been the source of intrigue for years. However, you may remember back in episode 20, when we last talked about the Knights Templar, I received a download about the original Masons, the Stone Masons, actually being the ancient people who knew the secrets to moving stones with sound and frequency. And I believe that's likely at least one of the secrets the Templars ended up with. They also for sure got their hands on mapping techniques that allowed them to explore more of the world than any other culture in recent history had the ability to do. This is part of what made them so rich and powerful, and ultimately dangerous to the Catholic Church, who had them burned at the stake a few hundred years later. But in the meanwhile, whatever information and treasures they found were passed on through secret ceremonies and traditions. Now, my guess is that there was little physical treasure to be found under King Solomon's temple by the time the Knights Templar got there. 
There had already been a thousand years of plundering and exploring by every rich and powerful civilization in the world in this one little spot to think that there was much left to find. But that hasn't stopped people from looking for these treasures for generations. However, I believe that the actual treasure they found was knowledge and information, and that that knowledge was used to find riches and treasures and was ultimately used to colonize and extract resources from every bit of land on Earth. Oh, and never mind, they may have uncovered or been privy to the knowledge about the holy bloodline created by the union of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. But before we get there, let's continue marching forward through time. During the Templars' time of influence, they amassed an incredible amount of riches created a banking system that served as the primary bank and lending institution to European monarchs and nobles, and had a sizable fleet of ships with which to explore the world. They also built many incredible churches filled with symbology and secret codes in both the architecture and the artwork, for those who knew what they were looking for. These churches happened to be located in very important locations. Because while the Temple Mount may be an especially powerful energetic node, it's certainly not the only one. And it seems that the Templars were using information they had about the Earth's energy lines to find other energetic nodes where communion with the divine was heightened. And when they did, they would build a church full of symbolism on that spot that anyone else following these same lines would certainly understand. But the most basic message was, This is an intersection of energy lines. Now, there's a whole bunch of side tangents and rabbit holes we can go down from here, but I'm trying to keep this as easy to follow as I can. However, I do want to touch on a bit of symbolism that seems to be continually handed down, and that is of a flower, or more specifically, the flower of life. The Templars seem to be hiding it in plain sight right on their uniforms. What we see is, quite obviously, a red cross in a stylized fashion. But if you look at the pattern in white instead of what's in red, you'll actually see a four-petaled flower of life, four overlapping circles. And the flower of life is a pattern of an energy structure that is the basis of nature, of all life forms. I'm sure, not coincidentally, the tree of life structure also fits perfectly into the flower of life pattern. And I'll add images of these things to the show notes to help you see it visually. Now, you'll find flower symbolism in all kinds of secret societies and ancient civilizations. And many of them look a lot like what is formed by sound waves found at the intersections of powerful energy lines or what we might call sacred sites. And if you meditate, chant, or play music at these locations, the energy shifts into different arrangements. Just like we've seen in cymatics experiments, where sound causes sand or water molecules to reorganize into beautiful shapes and symbols. The subtle energy in sacred sites also changes with these additional elements. Obviously, people have known about this for thousands and thousands of years. And what flower symbol seems to stand the test of time? Roses. Looking down at a rose from above, you'll see that it echoes another symbol, 
the vortex, one of the most powerful energies on Earth. So if you wanted to convey that there was an energy vortex in a particular location, a rose would be a suitable symbol to do that in a way that only others with this knowledge could see. Okay, so let's fast forward again to the Rosicrucian movement of the 1600s. Their symbol was of a rose on a cross, thus their name. And the group gained fame after a handful of manuscripts were published announcing the existence of esoteric truths of the ancient past that this group was in possession of. One of their primary leaders was Sir Francis Bacon. Bacon himself is steeped in intrigue, reported to be the illegitimate son of Queen Elizabeth I and the actual author of Shakespeare's works. He seems to be everywhere during the Renaissance and is a true definition of a Renaissance man. Bacon was also initiated as a Knights Templar prior to this time and was very involved in the promotion of Freemasonry after this time. So what was this ancient wisdom the Rosicrucians were talking about? It seems to be connected to the Egyptians, who used a cross as a symbol for immortality. Yep, the big secret everyone seems to be hiding is that even when we're dead, we're not dead. Our consciousness continues. I know, that's not exactly news to any of us here on a spiritual journey 400 years later. Like, duh. But that statement was, and still is, certainly counter to the teachings of the Catholic Church. You know, the same church that sanctioned the entire existence of the Knights Templars, and then ultimately rounded them up to burn them at the stake, probably because they didn't like how rich and powerful they'd become, and didn't want them spreading these treasonous ideas around. But let's put these pieces together. If we do live on after the death of our physical body, and communication with those in other realms was easier at sacred sites or places where energy lines merged, then there was a whole lot more energies to communicate with than just the divine at these locations. If nothing else, you could certainly hold counsel with your ancestors who could advise you on all kinds of matters from the other side of the veil. That would have been a pretty big deal in those times. But before we wrap this all up, let's jump forward in time just a bit more. Because a few hundred years after most of the Templars were rounded up by the church, the order was still going strong in Scotland, where it had never been dissolved and was quietly under ongoing protection by the king. And then somewhere in the 1600s, Freemasonry began to appear throughout Europe. Now, Stone masonry organizations had been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years at this point, presumably as European trade guilds. But at this time in history, suddenly another branch called speculative Freemasonry emerges, and its members are definitely not stonemasons. Suddenly, the stonemasons' trade guild became a fraternity of Europe's rich and famous. And these masons told a story about how their ancient forebears had learned stonemasonry, used it to build King Solomon's temple, protected the temple site, and held knowledge about their craft as a closely guarded secret. 
which takes me back to the download I had about ancient stonemasons being the ones who knew how to use sound and frequency to work with stones. What other closely guarded secrets have been passed down through all these organizations? It seems like the Templars had been using the knowledge they had about gridlines to sail to North America at the very least to locate and extract precious stones and metals. Because communion with other realms wasn't the only thing they found along gridlines. They also seemed to indicate where deposits of precious metals could be found in the earth. Evidence of very early mining has been found all over North America. The area around Green Oaks, Nova Scotia, is full of copper, gold, and titanium. And the building activities of the Knights Templars in Europe would have required more gold or copper than was available in all of Europe. Also, during the original construction of the Temple of Solomon, the king's sailing vessels were at sea for 42 days before reaching their secret gold mines. So it seems very reasonable that the location of King Solomon's mines and subsequently the Templars' secret source of gold and copper could have been North America. In fact, American archaeologists estimate that over half a million tons of copper were removed from the now-abandoned mine shafts lying along the north shore of Lake Superior, yet only a tiny portion of it has been located in archaeological sites within America. So if the Templars, who escaped to Scotland and then to North America, were in fact running a large-scale mining operation to continue funding their operations in Europe, they would have concealed their activities in ways that were only recognizable to those on the square, which refers to those who are well-versed in Masonic ritual. So it seems that knowledge of how to navigate the world by way of earth energy lines and find mineral riches was ultimately passed down from the Templars to the Rosicrucians to the Freemasons. I wonder why it was such a popular organization for those seeking to colonize and conquer the world and its indigenous people. Not only were many of the founding fathers of America Freemasons, but Lewis and Clark, who explored and mapped the Louisiana Purchase, were also Masons. What do you think they were actually sent to look for before the area was open to settlement. Obviously, I'm barely skimming the surface of thousands of years of history here, but these were some of the pieces that were put together for me over the past few months, and specifically as I did these property readings and grid work the last few weeks. And it answers the question as to why churches located themselves where they did, and how grid lines began to be manipulated for personal gain. As far as I can tell, the wisdom held by the high priests and priestesses of Atlantis has been passed down time and again for thousands of years, and just like any other bit of ancient text or wisdom, has likely been changed to suit the purposes of different groups of people and the current times. So what's left of it today, and who has it? Who knows? That question can lead us down all kinds of other rabbit holes that get even more outlandish, but probably have at least a shred of truth attached. But that's not the purpose of this discussion. As I said at the beginning, it almost doesn't matter anymore. The earth has been used and abused for so long by so many at this point, it's hardly recognizable. 
Wisdom that was meant for all of humanity has been veiled in secrecy and shared between the rich and powerful who used it to exploit other people and the entire planet. And I spent a week or so being generally frustrated while doing these readings and asking time and again what the purpose of it all was. I certainly couldn't remedy these issues by myself, and those who still have this corrupted knowledge and power would likely come right behind me and undo any of my work they didn't like. And through that questioning, I began to see the bigger picture. But I'll save that for next week's episode. In the meanwhile, if you're feeling super intrigued by all this talk of grids and vortexes and ancient energy lines, I'd love to have you join us in the Earth Tenders Academy, where we get into all of these topics and work together to do this healing work with the Earth. There's lots more information about the Earth Tenders Academy in the show notes, so go check it out and send me a note if you have any questions. And finally, a big thank you to everyone who's helped me work through these bits and scraps of information to illuminate the bigger picture, including everyone who signed up for a property reading going back to the winter solstice. All of these properties have connected to this bigger picture. Also, there's been a variety of others in the Earth Tenders Academy that I've done grid work with one-on-one or in small groups, including Elise in the Great Lakes region, Dawn, Heather, and Sarah in the Nova Scotia area who invited me to join them to work on the Green Oaks site, and Michaela in Mount Chasta who pointed me to Rory Duff's work that links many of these pieces together. Between his research, the Templar Meridians book, and my own research and channeling, the picture is becoming clearer. Not just of the past, but also of the future. If we can even call it that in this non-linear, linear world we live in. But I'll link to some of these key resources in the show notes. Okay, that is more than enough for you to think on for the next few days. I will be back here next Tuesday with the next part of this story. I'll see you then. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.